I didn't think of my humanness as an important part of my physicianness. Whereas now it feels inseparable. Now it feels like the only way that I can take care of people is by being human. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing in times of emergency and crisis and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Emily Brumfield. Emily is a board-certified emergency physician and an attending doctor at the Oshner Health System Department of Emergency Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana, where she is part of a team developing a new residency starting in July 2020. Previously, she was an assistant professor of emergency medicine and an assistant clerkship director at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And before that, she was a resident at the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency in Boston, Massachusetts, which is where I had the incredible fortune to get to work with her. We go to some really deep places in this episode, talking about bringing your humanity to your work, about applying algorithmic thinking without becoming a robot, and about functioning on the edge of uncertainty. Before we start the actual conversation, just a reminder, if you're not already, consider signing up for the Emergency Mind newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and it delivers a really deep dose of insight into a lot of the concepts and mental models that we use and discuss in the Emergency Mind. It's free to sign up, and you can join at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, let's get to it. I hope you enjoy. All right, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is an awesome, awesome to sit down and talk with you like this. I wish we could be doing it face to face, but but this is the next best thing. I'm so glad to be here. I'm very excited that you've started something like this and I've really enjoyed listening to it. So I'm very pumped to be a participant. Right on. Well, let's start let's start sort of, I don't know, back in the beginning, back with an earlier version of Emily. What what got you into emergency medicine? What what made you what made you want to do this as your life? Well, I came to emergency medicine by accident. I in med school thought that I wanted to do med peds, which for our non-medical listeners is a combination of internal medicine and pediatrics, because I had this fantasy that doesn't exist in real medicine that I could work in the ICUs of both pediatrics and adult, because I like critical care. And I like resuscitation and I like taking care of everyone. And I didn't really consider emergency medicine because it had a reputation of being intellectually lazy. And I thought of myself as being really smart. (laughs) I've now learned a little bit more about myself. But emergency medicine, thankfully, was a required rotation at Tulane where I went to med school. And by the third shift, I was like, oh, this is where I need to be. And it was a feeling I got from my coworkers, from not knowing what was on the other side of the curtain. That process of being a diagnostician for majority of the hospital was really something I enjoyed. And being able to take care of anybody at any time felt like what I was looking for from MedPeds. And so that was in, <coughs> pardon me, July, uh, no June of my fourth year of med, uh, med school. And so I scrambled and arranged some aways and, and things like that. So it just worked out right in the nick of time. What did it feel like watching those more experienced ER doctors handle a case? What stood out to you from the beginning like that? Well, I so my rotation was at what was then called University Medical Center, which was the interim hospital between Charity Hospital and now University Medical Center, the new building. So it was our interim hospital post-Katrina. And 
was the only level one trauma center in New Orleans um, or in, in the state at that time. And so we were seeing lots and lots of trauma, lots of penetrating trauma, but also blunt because it's the only show in town. And so seeing the way the emergency doctors and trauma surgeons and nurses and social workers and police sometimes all came together to take care of this one patient that was critically ill or had been injured in some severe way in a way that was now in retrospect, I would call that like excellent teamwork and close loop communication and room management, all of those management skills of making order out of chaos was something that really appealed to me. And so there wasn't any one person that I was like, oh, this guy or this uh, lady is just the most amazing doctor. It was like, oh, all these people like know their role, they know what to do. And when that happens, you can really provide high quality, excellent care to someone who is having the worst day of their life. The other thing that made an impression on me is because there was so much trauma and need is as a third or end of third year, beginning of fourth year med student, I was sent in to take care of someone with like a really low risk gunshot wound <laughs> alone. Like they weren't even a trauma activation. <laughs> they were just, it was just guy got shot in the leg and I was supposed to go in there and be like, we're leaving the bullet there. See ya. Uh, when was your last tetanus shot? And, um, feeling that my like senior resident and attending were so comfortable with their knowledge base that they trusted me to go in and there and start um, made me, I wanted that. I wanted that level of comfort. I wanted that uh, confidence and self-assuredness, which of course, like every medical student desires <laughs> to like get there at some point, but I really saw it on display in the ED and really admired that. Hmm. And then you went to residency up in Boston where, where I was lucky enough to get a chance to work with you and to, <laughs> to train under you. And we spent um, many, many night shifts together, I think perhaps more than any other person that I worked with for some reason. Yeah, time. it was a real uh, feat of scheduling that we spent <laughs> almost every night shift together. Um, and both of us are uh, black clouds. And so we yes. spent some real chaotic evenings. Yeah, and I actually don't think we've ever mentioned the word black cloud on this podcast now that, now that I think about it. But it, it's the idea that um, when you come on shift, crazy, crazy things tend to happen. And yes. the worst cases come in, the sickest people come in, and they and they just come in in waves. And it, and it seems somehow as if the universe knows that you're working that night and decides to say, cool, I wonder if you can hit 16 curveballs all at once go. <laughs> and it, you know, I'm I'm proud of that designation, and it's something that's followed me along, and I, I would assume the same for you, right? Yeah, I, I think I might be like a gray cloud now. I'm definitely not a white cloud, but um, <clears throat> I do feel like in residency, and, you know, certainly this is like the cognitive load weighing in, right, that as a resident, your capacity is diminished, and to where my capacity is now bigger as an attending, or I'm, I understand more. So what felt like a black cloud night probably wouldn't now. But at the time, it felt like you'd walk in and like someone would say that it's quiet. Someone would say it's been a great day. And then like 14 people check in and they're all bleeding from every orifice. And it just felt like, you know, now it doesn't feel like that as much. Though certainly there are times where I, I feel a lot of struggle because I can only be in one place at one time. And we don't have emergency medicine residents where I work very often. We, the LSU residents do do rotations with us, but they're not always present and nor is this their house. And so they don't know how to run everything. And so it's really an attending run place where I work 
And so I have those moments where it feels like the wheels have come off, but definitely not for 12 hours straight (laughs) on an overnight shift where everything, I don't know, like where it just felt like we were uh, just constantly running. So thinking now backward about your time in residency, as you were as you were learning to improve your ability to handle cognitive load and to handle these crazy cases, what were there anything that stood out to you as as particularly informative cases or particularly like meaningful teachers or or how did that how did that work for you? And I, I'm I'm curious to hear how you answer this in part because. I love reflecting on our time together, but also because mm-hmm. as you step into your new role, where all of a sudden you are now going to be helping to run this brand new residency, how are you planning to do it differently than than what you learned? Those are so many good questions all rolled into one. First, to go back to like residency cognitive load, I remember thinking as a resident, feeling unsupervised which in retrospect, it was absolutely not the case, but feeling like I was out on a ledge having to make medical decisions by myself. And only if I went and then asked my senior or attending, if I asked for help, would they step in? Which is of course an important life lesson for all of us to learn to ask for help because people can't intuit your needs but or your, your deficits. But also realizing that that was a really important skill that they were that was intentionally being built in me as a learner that I have to learn to make decisions while uncomfortable with limited information. And I will say, uh, Dr. Dave Brown explained it to me this way that as your supervisor, my job is to be the bumpers in the bowling alley. It's not my job to make sure you get the ball from beginning to end in the most efficient way possible. You can like bounce all around and hit the bumpers. As long as you get to the end, you're smart enough and you're uh, reflective enough to look back and say, all those bounces were not needed for me to get to this end with the patient. And so in the future, you'll bowl it straight down the middle. But if I were to keep you only in the middle, you wouldn't learn why those steps are the most efficient. And So in ways that I felt unsupervised were ways that I was bouncing between the bumpers and then looking back and saying, oh, why did someone let me do that in a such, you know, like no style points or awarded way? (laughs) Because, of course, I wanted to be perfect. I had this idea that one could be perfect at that time, um, which I now no longer am as in love with that idea. Um, And so I wanted to be the most efficient provider possible for my patients. But I had to be bad at it, or had to be messy about it, I should say. Couldn't be bad about it, bad at it. Had to be messy about it in order to learn to be more efficient. So I think, you know, Dave Brown's way of, his philosophy of teaching is my philosophy of teaching now, but it helped me tolerate a lot of the uncertainty, even in the moment. So once I knew that that's what he was doing, I could say, well, you know, he'll keep me from killing someone or causing irreparable damage I'm not going to go nuts. I'm not going to go like wild and just do whatever I want, but I'm going to try to stay in the lane. But I felt safer learning. And so that helps me manage some of the cognitive load because he always had this like uncanny ability to come back to the department right whenever it was, you know, blowing up. And it's because he was comfortable with his knowledge base and his information and knew very well where I was 
where we all were as learners to know, well, this is about the time that a beginning third year resident is going to feel stressed. And so then he would come back and I'd be like, oh, great. I have so many questions for you. So increasing my cognitive load or ability to tolerate a cognitive load intellectually grew from that. But I will also say that, you know, I've been in therapy for a really long time and learning myself better and learning my own response to stress and recognizing my signs that I was near, uh, near capacity or over capacity, which learning that in real time is very difficult for me. But, (laughs) you know, talking about uh, debriefing with yourself during shift and post shift, learning that about myself has increased my ability because I can check in with myself now and say, this feels unsafe, or this feels scary, but manageable. Um, And I can, because I can check in and then include myself as one of the things I'm checking on as I'm monitoring the department that has improved my cognitive load because I don't overwhelm myself and then forget about something. And what does that look like when you, when you check in with yourself or when you debrief with yourself during or after a shift, how, how do you actually do that? During a shift is much more difficult than after a shift, but during a shift, I'll try to notice it's, you know, some very like fundamental mindfulness stuff of like, what am I physically feeling right now? Do I have chest pain? <laughs> do I feel short of breath? Like, am I anxious? And, or the ways that I feel anxiety, like do my muscles hurt? Do I feel fatigued? Um, do I have to pee? Do I need to eat something? You know, things like that. How do I maintain my humanness while working this job? How do I do this for the long haul without, how do I do this job that demands a lot of me without sacrificing myself for it. Um, that's what it looks like on shift. And of course, some days are better than others. And um, like most, I would say, emergency physicians or probably most physicians, we tend, even if I'm aware that I have to pee, I can't always go pee because of the rest of the demands on the department. But it's at least one of the balls that I'm juggling of when can I do this? When can I, you know, I have to go check in on this patient. I have to call this consult. Can I fit in? what I need uh, during this. And when I do fit in what I need during this, I feel like I have much more capacity to take care of other people because I'm not talking to someone and only thinking like I might pee on myself (laughs) or I'm so hungry or I'm a little lightheaded or when is the last time I ate anything Um, or, you know, whatever else I could be thinking that's not patient centered at the bedside. Yeah. I was reading recently Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a really interesting and very in-depth book, sort of digging into the reality of like how our brains process stuff. And one of the first, um, I'm forgetting the the name of the model that it actually might be cognitive load theory that he talks about for this, right? Just the basic idea that like, you know, we have a finite amount of energy to spend on things. And Mm -hmm. like, if we are trying to create these very sophisticated models and these multi-step Bayesian, you know, uh, inference processes to try to figure out what to do for our patient. Like we will be better at doing that when we are fed and watered appropriately and are able to, are able to do that. And, and it's a real thing that our performance will change over the course of a shift and over the course of an hour. And I, I think you and I were joking as we were sort of warming up before this, talking about the fact that um, sometimes during residency, we felt like robots. We felt like we were trying to be robots and not people. Mm-hmm. And you said something that I, I thought was really interesting just a second ago, which was this idea of maintaining my humanness, which yeah. is, which wasn't always part of the goal when 
when I was starting, when we were starting. Definitely like, not. That wasn't no. one of the checklists, right? It was, it was, did you see the patients? Did you learn the skill? And then, and I, I don't want this to sound like our training program was, you know, mean or belligerent. They weren't, they were wonderful, but it's just hard to understand or it wasn't as obvious to me back then that, that being human is also part of the goal. Um, right. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that either. And in, in retrospect, like we had sessions in conference that were about humanity. You know, we had ethics sessions. We talked about difficult cases. We had room to share our emotional selves with each other in conference and in our residency. And I definitely feel like our leadership that I could have gone to them with any emotional problem and it would have been received even if, you know, not unsolvable. And but at the time, I didn't, I couldn't meet their, I guess you'd call it like a bid for emotional authenticity. I couldn't meet it because I wasn't ready to accept it in myself. I didn't think that I could do that. I didn't think that I could be fully human and fully robot because I, you can't, there's no, you can't be a robot. But because I valued that idea, I had this idea that I had to sort of shut down all this external stuff that was going on in my life to go into a shift and just perform. And I agree with you that I didn't think of my humanness as an important part of my physicianness. Whereas now it feels inseparable. Now it feels like the only way that I can take care of people is by being human because all we have are these five minutes with this person and I'm asking them to trust me with their innermost secrets with their most embarrassing whatever. And the only way that I can do that is by saying like, I'm human and I don't have judgment for you. And all we can, all I can do is connect with you and hope that you'll trust me to take care of you. Cause trust and feeling like your physician is hearing you are almost the only important things about whatever, from a patient's perspective, to whether or not they, you know, they think you care, whether or not they think you are going to take care of them in their hour of need. And I think we, you and I, and a lot of people that we went to residency with are very good at appearing to be good humans, <laughs> appearing to be empathetic, even when we don't feel that. Like we can make the faces and we can say the words, even if we do not care at all. And I think people can pick up on that whenever you're like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. They know whether you're honest or not. You know, people aren't stupid. They're not different from us. We are the same. And when someone tells you something that's full of BS, you're like, yeah, yeah, move on. And whenever they're being sincere with you, you're, even if it's not anything helpful, you're like, well, thank you. And, or I appreciate that. And so I think we got good marks, you and I, I think, for having good bedside manner in residency, even though we were like, I'm the best robot <laughs> that has ever lived. <laughs> and I'm going to robot so hard on this shift today. And the only way I can be a good person is if I robot really hard. And I, I just don't. I think that helped us, obviously, you know, have emoting faces. Um, but I think I have learned more in the past, you know, 10 years that I need, I, that needs to be backed up with real humanity. Oh, all right. So cool. So, so many things to dig into in that. <laughs> and so tempted to 
make the icon picture for this episode uh, some robot saying it's going to robot so hard, except that we've already <laughs> we've already picked that your your dog Olive will be the star. Of this. <laughs> In any case, though, go, going back, so I think this is a really really interesting distinction because. There are definitely times in our job where the most important thing we can do is be a human sitting with another human in a room as people are going through some of the deepest and most, I I don't know, I I guess the word is, I guess I'd say sacred almost parts of life, right? Birth Mm -hmm. and death and suffering and coming to grips with mortality and, and the reality of what it means to be a human being. And then there are also times in our job where we actually sort of do need to be a robot sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Like there is a person who is bleeding to death in front of us, and it doesn't matter that they kind of look like your mom, right? You just need to yeah. put the blood back in the good person and figure out all of the things that it needs to happen. And so there's this dichotomy in terms of when you need to present which side of yourself and which part of your brain and which part of your heart to this patient. Um, and I, I think that that's not just true for emergency medicine, right? The, the folks that I've spoken to um, are, you know, our friends in the military and in a lot of other places also have this thing where you are a human and then sometimes you have to step not necessarily outside, but maybe, you know, X number of degrees off of your normal axis of humanity to mm-hmm. accomplish a particular task. And so so maybe it's maybe we're not robot. Maybe we're not human. Maybe we're cyborg. Right. I don't <laughs> But maybe we have to have this ability. In fact, we do have to have this ability to turn on or off different parts of that self. And, you know, when I was first studying anatomy in medical school is one of the first times you sort of experience this kind of thing where you're, you're dissecting a person. Right. And then all of a sudden you go and it's a pretty common experience to have everybody that you see on the street sort of decompose in your mind to a set of muscles and bones as opposed yes. to a human. And we all go through that and, and it lasts a little while. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you're just about to start it, like you're going to have these crazy dreams and that's okay. That's part of becoming a doctor. But, but somehow you learn to, to control that dial and to control the mix of, of what you offer to the universe in that moment, whether it is more robot or more human or more cyborg or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're what you're saying is that your the the richness, the depth, the toolkit that you have to approach that decision has changed quite a bit over the last several years since you've left residency. Am, am, am I hearing that right? Yeah, and I think probably the easiest way to think about that is how you interact with an intubated patient. So for the non-medical listeners, this is someone who has a breathing tube, they're on a ventilator, and they're usually sedated. And so there's varying degrees of awareness with the intubated patient. And it can be super easy to be robotic about how you approach them. And you do have to be algorithmic 100% of the time. You have to make sure that the tube is in the right place. You have to make sure that their sedation is not making their blood pressure drop too much. There's all these things that you have to do essentially in a checklist form, but you know, the checklist is in our brain as opposed to on the wall. But I would say that whenever I first started training, I wouldn't necessarily think of an intubated patient as someone that I needed to talk to. I would think that they are someone that I can't get a history from. So why even try? Even though I cognitively know that sedation works differently in different people and that person 
theoretically could be hearing everything that we're saying and that I don't know enough that we don't know enough about how the brain works <laughs> as a field, as a specialty, as a, as humans to know that they are aware of their surroundings. And so when I first started residency and still now, sometimes depending on my emotional capacity, I will, you know, not consider an intubated patient as the same as someone that's sitting up and talking to me. And so when I feel like I'm the best version of myself and I have all my capacity, like engines fueled up and all my empathy. So like the beginning of a shift after a long break (laughs) and, you know, I'm fed and watered and all that stuff. You know, I think it's important that I go next to the intubated person and I introduce myself and I tell them what's happening to them. And I say that they're in the hospital and I try to reorient them because I don't know if they can hear me or not, but I know they'd rather hear me say that than not say anything because they're getting all of these painful things done to them and probably have some perception of it. And so I think that's probably the easiest way to say how my, like, even my algorithmic thinking has been filtered through humanity, or I try to, you know, that's that's like my highest goal self when I'm at work. Um, And to think about the humanity of my team, which is to remind us that we're taking care of a person. And, you know, after a code, if we're not able to get someone back to have a moment of silence, I'm not religious. I don't, I'm not praying for the person, but I think it's important to recognize the humanity of that person that in their last moment taught us something. And um, I think that's way, that's been a progression for me that when I started and was trying to be the best robot that could possibly robot, I didn't think about that. I wanted to look smart. I wanted to look good for the team. I wanted, well, I wanted to be those things, obviously, but I, I wanted to have that appearance of total control and total emotional mastery, which at that time I thought meant shutting down um, or not displaying my feelings at work. You know, like there's no crying in baseball sort of stuff. And if I did cry at work, I had to like go hide it. Um, and <laughs> the listeners can't see this because Dan is laughing at me because he's definitely seen me cry at work. <laughs> so he knows. No, no. I'm changed. I mean, I'm actually laughing because of the number of times that you and I had said to each other, there's no crying in baseball <laughs> in the middle of a particularly vicious shift. Um, and would sort of use that as a touchstone to be like, right, at least we have each other and we're going to move forward through this yes. and it's going to be okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it makes me think sort of a, another teammate of ours, Ashley Kochanik, who mm-hmm. would, um, was a wonderful, wonderful doctor and human being. And uh, I remember distinctly us doing running a cardiac arrest together and not being able to bring the person back. And this was in Mass General in, in acute. And she slowed the whole team down afterwards, put her hand on this person's foot and said, thank you, sir, for teaching all of us. I'm sorry all we could do today is to learn. That's so moving. And that has stuck with me and become my ritual whenever I'm in that position as well. Because mm-hmm. I think that that you're right that you know we we have to control what we do so we can we can 
you know, we have to do algorithms, but not be robots, right? Like algorithms, yes. but not robots. And and to find the best way to deliver all of the knowledge that the world has come up with into this person's body in their time of need. And then also to, to not lose sight of the fact, like you said earlier, like nobody is different. We are all in this together. We are all humans trying to make sense of this craziness, mm -hmm. you know, hurtling on a rock through space, right? <laughs> yes. To get, to get really deep about it briefly. But um, how do you switch back and forth between those components? Or do you even view them as, as separate components? I mean, you said a few minutes ago that it's hard for you to imagine now removing that, that your humanity is so deeply entwined with what it is to be a doctor that they are the same thing for you. I, I'd say sometimes that feels that way for me. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way at all. How do you mix those two things together? Yeah, I think I still have that um, instinct to not listen to my humanity on shift. Whenever things are the craziest, whenever things are the busiest, I still find myself, um, I should say, acting like a human as opposed to being human on shift and, or imitating the best, <laughs> best version of a human that I can think of. Um, but so whenever... This is more of a personal um, philosophy, but I, for me, whenever I don't think about my own humanity, it feels like a betrayal of myself and that there is nothing in the world worth self-betrayal. And while having someone dying in front of me is, of course, more urgently important globally, I still have to take care of myself and part of me feeling whole and human when I leave work means that I've brought myself to work and it can oh. be really easy to leave myself at home. And I did that a lot at, as a resident where I would basically go to work and, you know, cognitively or emotionally or you know, psychically transform into, um, this, you know, we're, we're using the word robot, but we mean this person who leaves their baggage at the door, that leaves what makes them human at the door and tries to be just like everybody else. Because honestly, a, a part of the hidden curriculum of being a resident is trying to be like everybody else that you're working with. And you see other people not have a problem with this one patient interaction or have a problem that you don't have. And um, it makes you feel outside of the norm. And I have learned that when I bring myself to work and I point out things that other people aren't bothered by, um, then it makes me feel like I'm doing something more for that patient than another person could. And a lot of emergency medicine is we often feel like we could be switched out with any other emergency provider and the patient would get similar good care. Um, and I don't, I'm not a person that believes everything happens for a reason or that every patient encounter is magic, you know, things like that. I definitely have patients that I don't feel superhuman with, but um, I definitely think that there are patients that I, I want to be glad that it was me at the bedside mm -hmm. as opposed to someone else. And that might sound a little like grandiose, but like when I take care of a patient who has been assaulted, 
I know that I've done a lot of thinking and training on how to take care of those patients. And so while it is very difficult for me emotionally to take care of those patients, I'm glad it's me. And I'm glad that I can bring my empathetic human self to the bedside because a lot of people are really uncomfortable with patients that are victims of sexual assault and the patient knows that. And so bringing myself to work is a way that I retain my own humanity and can be proud of the job that I do whenever I leave work. Mm. Wow. Emily, thank you for that. That's such an interesting way to put that and, and really challenges the way that I think about coming to work, which I love. And so, so pressing on that, like logistically, what does that look like? You know, when I go to work, I, I have my own little checklist. Everybody does. Okay, I've got my pediatric ACLS card. I've got my 11-blade scalpel. I've got my, you know, like sense of understanding of where I am in the universe. But I, I don't know that I've ever asked myself, did I bring myself to work today? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do you ask that question? I think it's... it's it's very difficult to say, particularly now in the time of coronavirus, in which our work has been exponentially harder and my older coping mechanisms have come back to fight <laughs> for, for a seat at the table. Um, and so it's been harder lately, for sure, because I'm more stressed. But typically what I try to do, I, I try to be quiet before I go to work and be still. Like, it's really hard for me to transition from, like, doing something, like a social activity or some event, and then go straight to work. Like, I, it's a, it has to be an intentional centering of myself of, okay, I'm going to be going to work. There's going to be lots of things that are pulling at me to decenter me or pull me off balance. And very intentionally, clearly saying it is important that I remain myself at work and that myself is enough, that I don't need to be different. Of course, I'd like to be encyclopedically smarter. I would like to have infinite capacity. You know, I still, I still love the robot idea, but knowing that I, that's not reality and so I can't want that, but that the best I can do is bring myself to work and think about, you know, if, think about the humanity of the patient. Dr. Todd Thompson from Mount Auburn Hospital used to say, when you're the most stressed, the social history will save you, which for non-medical listeners, the social history is the human part of our patient. So what do you do for work? Who is your family? Where are you from? You know, wh what is the person that envelopes this disease process? And thinking, because I'm home now, because I'm in New Orleans, I have a more clear understanding of what someone's social history is. You know, when they say they're from this particular neighborhood, I know what that means. And that helps me, um, it sort of pings off of my own sense of identity. And I can understand more of who we are together in this room. And so when I explain to the patient, like, oh, I'm from here too, that helps them trust me, you know, and because Louisiana is very insular and suspicious of outsiders. <laughs> but that all of that is to say is before I go to work, I have to remind myself that um, who I am is important to doing this work. It's not a handicap or something that keeps me from doing the work. Hmm. That is so cool. I, 
I was reading literally 10 minutes before this a book by um, Josh Waitzkin, who is a world champion uh, chess master. He's the the subject of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer and also a world champion Tai Chi artist and also a champion jiu-jitsu player. And his his book is called On Learning. No, sorry, The Art of Learning. Um, And it's really... It's really amazing. And I was literally just reading, he was reflecting on what he'd learned from competing at a high level of of Tai Chi, where your opponent is literally trying to push you off balance. And he said, look, when I started, I, I pretended emotions didn't exist and that none of this would matter. And then I realized I would get angry and I would get frustrated. And I decided to build a really big wall around myself so these emotions wouldn't hit me. I acknowledge they exist, but I tried to keep them away. Yes. How'd that work out? Right, exactly. <laughs> and and then as it goes farther, he talks about exactly what you said, which is that he realized like his best art comes from being true to himself and from putting no blockages between who he is as a human and who he is as a performer. And that together, that's really where the deepest, most beautiful art, Tai Chi, chess, emergency medicine, whatever comes from. Um, it's really it's wonderful to hear that reflected because I need to hear it a bunch of times before I think I'll understand it even (laughs) briefly, let alone incorporate it. But that idea of like, wow, you know, who I am does matter to this. And the person that is, you know, not just Dan Dorcas in scrubs wearing a mask, but also like who I am as a human being matters to this situation. That's a really, it's a really deep thought. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to dig into a lot. Um, well, I think a lot of people have the fantasy that who they are doesn't matter because they think that um, they only look at their flaws, right, or their foibles or the ways in which they're insufficient and unable to meet the demands of the job. And the demands are many and we can't meet all of them at all times. And so it's a nice idea to think, well, you know, I'm just as good as the next guy or just as bad as the next guy. And that's probably true. You know, we're probably all similarly trained. Um, and we're all similar, similarly able to do a technical procedure and to do, to run a code and to do all that stuff. But the, the style, the outside part, the human part, I think can be just as effective, even if it makes no difference to your patient, it lets you leave work being proud of who you are, which is for me, it has to be a daily practice and like reaffirming my worthiness and, um, self-esteem and you know things like that because I have to there's so many things in the world that will make you feel insufficient and uh, not enough and in our work in particular we always we're always having to say I don't know or asking for help and asking the next person someone that's more specialized than us and it's very easy to think well they're smarter than me when they're they're just they have a different Venn diagram of knowledge and so it helps me not be like well I'm the dumbest person in the world I have to ask for help it's I know myself, I know my zone and the circle around me. And therefore it doesn't bother me that someone else has a different circle. Um, Cause it can be training in particular can be a real beat down <laughs> from the worthiness perspective. Um, Cause nobody, you don't know anything and everyone's smarter than you, or at least it feels that way. And even if they aren't smarter than you, they still win because the medical hierarchy is terrible. And so fighting for yourself is really important in our work. I think that for me is the only way we can 
achieve career longevity because this is hard work. It's not just necessarily a, well, hey, I don't know that particular specialized thing, but because we are literally running over and over again into the edge of human knowledge in general, right? We are, we are telling patients and their families, as a species, we do not have the tool to help your loved one. Yeah. Or we have it, but it's not available here. Or we have it, but this country doesn't have it. Or, or we just don't know. And we are not even close to omnipotent. And we do face that edge all the time, every shift. So this idea of, of reminding yourself that you matter as a human and that, I, I mean, that, that has to be some of the answer to it. I, you, you know, I also think that it definitely matters for, for the team, right? Like I might be interchangeable when it comes to putting a central line in, but I know I'm not interchangeable when it comes to leading a team. And I definitely mm-hmm. believe that I can galvanize a, a crew and galvanize a group together to, to lead a critical resuscitation in a way that, that is reflective of my training and my background and who I am as a human being. And, you know, you joked about style points earlier, but like, yeah, man, with like, with like a little bit of style points for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think you would agree that there's no greater compliment than whenever you walk into a room with a sick patient and the nurse says, Oh, thank God it's you. And so that's the biggest argument that the style matters. It's meaningful to your team. It's meaningful to their, meaningful to their well-being and burnout. Um, and as physicians, we're team leaders, whether we want to be or not, and whether we think of our team as all like very egalitarian, ultimately, at the end of the day, the tone rests with us. Mm-hmm. And whether we step into that role or not makes a big difference to our colleagues. And you can say it doesn't matter who it is that's running because ACLS is an algorithm. But like we've all seen well-run rooms and poorly run rooms, even if the same medicines were administered at the same time. And so, yeah, I definitely think... When we, the urge is to be like hard and robot and what we really need to be is soft and human and you can still bring your robot brain, you know, like you can still be super smart and algorithmic and that just be one of those pieces that you put forward. It doesn't have to be the only piece you put forward. In retrospect, I'm pretty sure this is the entire plot of the movie RoboCop. Right. Like he's got still some human. It's been a while, but I'm pretty sure he still has like part of a human brain and a human heart. And ultimately, even though he's a robot cop, he still endorses like it is his humanity that helps him save the day. This is like Wally. Yeah. Well, also, right. (laughs) I haven't seen RoboCop, but I have seen Wally. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to we're going to watch it over Zoom sometime soon. Okay. Um, Emily, thank you for this. This is just this is just an awesome set of things to think through, and I think it really applies not just to not just to all of us in emergency medicine, but you know, all of us face this tension between how much of ourselves do we bring into a situation, and do we really show up for our work? Right? There's okay. this Khalil Gibran quote from the book The Prophet that says, "If you bake a, be- a if you bake bread with indifference, you create a loaf that feeds only half of somebody's hunger." And Man, I, I think there's just a lot to dig into from that. Yeah. Um, as we sort of draw all of this to a close, uh, I wanted to to ask if you had any particular challenges that you want to issue to to folks listening to this, to ER doctors or not ER doctors, or or everybody as they're as they're moving forward. Well, yeah, I I think you started on it, which is to say, think about if you're bringing yourself in every encounter and being forgiving yourself 
of yourself whenever you realize that you might not be, because um, it's impossible to do that. And it's not always safe to do that in every encounter. But I would also ask for you to think about the energy you're giving out whenever you're having to show up to an encounter that you don't necessarily want to bring yourself to. The message you're sending to the person you're with, sort of like your half-baked bread, is I'm here, but I don't want to be. And think about how you might be communicating that in your, not just your body language or your words, but the energy that you're giving out in that interaction, because people are really smart and they pick up on it and try to pick up on their energy too. It's, um, it sounds a little new wavy, like crystal holding, but it's a force that people have, you know, that the same thing that makes you attracted to someone right off the bat or dislike someone right off the bat is bouncing off of their energy. And so thinking about the kind that you're transmitting and if it's consistent with who you want to be and how that might affect what you bring to the table. Emily, thank you so much. It is just such a pleasure. This has been so fun. Thank you for having me. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.